Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, pastor of outreach at LMPC, and this is a Pillar and Ground confession episode. In our confession episodes, we seek to understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Last week, we began our study of chapter three of the confession on God's eternal decree. And we looked at paragraphs one and two together. We learned that the scriptures teach that First, God is sovereign over all things, which means that nothing is outside of his plan. And we learned that that includes even the entrance of sin into his world and our salvation from that sin. Whatever has come to pass, God ordained freely from all eternity. Yet the confession was also quick to remind us of what this does not mean based upon what else we know from Scripture. So we learned that God has ordained whatever comes to pass, but not in such a way that makes him the author of sin nor in such a way that violates the will of his creatures, nor in such a way that gets rid of secondary causes. So the doctrine of the eternal decree does not mean that God's the source of sin, or that we're mere puppets on strings, or that things like prayer and evangelism don't matter. If you listened, you may recall that we talked about that common argument. Uh, Well, God's already ordained everything. Why bother praying? Why bother evangelizing? The people are going to be saved or be healed no matter what you do. So why bother? And we responded by saying that, in fact, the reason we should pray and evangelize is that they are God's ordained means for bringing about his ends. God ordains both means and ends. And so that should give us great confidence as we pray and evangelize, because they may be, in fact, the way that he brings those ends about. This week, we're looking at Westminster Confession of Faith 3.3 through 3.5. Paragraphs 3 through 5 of chapter 3 further unpack one aspect of God's eternal decree, namely the eternal destiny of men and angels. And yes, that means that we are going to be talking about the dreaded doctrine of predestination today. Few doctrines are as offensive to the modern American individualist as this one. It challenges our sense of autonomy and the American ideal of self-reliance. I hardly, I know of hardly anyone who hears uh, our articulation of the doctrine of predestination who embraces it immediately. But regardless of how we may feel about the doctrine, the question before us is, what does the Bible say about it? Does the Bible really teach this? And that takes us back to where the confession began in chapter one, as it talked about scripture as God's revelation of himself uh, being authoritative. And so if, if it says it, then it must be true, and we are bound to believe it. So before we answer that question, what does the Bible say on this topic, let me just read Westminster Confession of Faith 3.3 through 3.5, and then we can proceed to see if in fact scripture teaches what the confession says it does. 3.3, by God's decree, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are individually and unchangeably designated, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or decreased. Those people who are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will has chosen in Christ to everlasting glory. He chose them out of his free grace and love alone, not because he foresaw faith or good works or perseverance in either of these or anything else in the creature 
as conditions or causes moving him to do this, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, I know that was quite a mouthful, so let me just try to summarize briefly some of the headings of what uh, 3.3 through 3.5 is talking about. First, God decrees who will be saved and who will be left in their lost estate. Second, that determination is unchangeable. And third, God's decision is not based on any condition which he foresees will be fulfilled by them. And fourth, God does all of this for his own glory. Because the Bible says far more about the salvation and judgment of men than it does of angels, we're going to spend the majority of our time today talking about mankind and what the confession says there. But for those who are interested, 1 Timothy 5.21 does make reference to elect angels. And in Matthew 25.41, Jesus says that at the final judgment, God will say to some, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Thus, the confession says that God's electing purpose includes angels as well as men. So let's begin with one of the first headings we talked about. God decrees who will be saved and who will be left in their lost estate. Here, the confession is referring to the doctrines of what is called election and reprobation. Election is that aspect of predestination that refers to those who will be saved in Christ. Where do we see this in the scriptures? We see it in verses like Ephesians 1, 3-5, which reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So there we see Paul saying God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in love according to the purpose of his will. So that's election. What about reprobation? Reprobation refers to those who will be left in their lost estate, the ones God chooses to pass by and ordain to wrath on account of their sins. The confession goes into more depth on reprobation in paragraph 7 of chapter 3, which we're going to be returning to in a couple of weeks. So for now, we're going to consider election and reprobation together as aspects of predestination and particularly focusing in uh, on election. So we mentioned Ephesians 1, but where else do we see this doctrine taught in Scripture? The reality is that election is such a dominant theme in the Scriptures that we would be hard-pressed to list all of the places. We could look at God's call of Abraham, his choosing Isaac and rejecting Ishmael, his choice of Jacob and rejection of Esau, his election of Israel and rejection of the other nations. All of these uh, various passages and stories would detail God's election. Jesus himself refers to election in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus there says that he's going to raise up on the last day those who have believed in him and who are the ones who have believed in him. 
It's the ones the Father has given him. All of those people are the ones that the Father has given to him. So the God, so God the Father has chosen them and given them to Jesus, and Jesus says he will never lose them. He's even more explicit about election in John 15, 16, when he tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. But perhaps no passage brings the doctrine of election into clearer focus than Romans chapter 9. We're going to spend a significant amount of time in this passage, so if you're in a place where you can open a Bible and follow along, let me encourage you to do that. Maybe take a moment right now, press pause on the episode. We'll be here when you get back. So in Romans 9, Paul is reflecting on the theme of Israel's unbelief in Jesus. He's asking questions like, how can the chosen people not believe in their Messiah? What about God's promises to Israel, to his chosen people? Does does Jesus just do away with all of that? And Paul says, absolutely not. He says in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So Paul says the reason some of the Jews don't believe is that they don't really truly belong to Israel. They might descend from Abraham by blood, but that's not the deciding factor. Genetics is not the deciding factor. What is? In verse 8, he says, It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So Paul says the deciding factor is whether they are children of God's promise. Paul then proceeds to point out that there were multiple physical descendants of Abraham who were not included in God's promise. In verse 9, Paul points out that the promise was made to the children that Abraham would have by Sarah, and therefore by implication not by Hagar. So Isaac was a child of promise, but Ishmael was not. In verse 10, he points out that the same thing will happen in the next generation. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, gets pregnant with twin boys, and God chooses to include one of the sons in the promise and not the other. And this is where this passage really begins to bear on our discussion of the doctrine of election. Look back at verses 11 through 13 with me. Though they, talking about Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul says that God chose Jacob over Esau, and notice just all of the qualifiers that he includes. God made this choice before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. And why did God do this? Paul tells us so that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God elects Jacob out of his own good pleasure, not because of any good work that Jacob has done, and he does not choose Esau. Perhaps as we read that, you thought, but that's not fair. It's not fair to Esau. But Paul anticipates our our objection. Look back at verses 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul says we can't cry foul on God for choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, because God did not have to choose either of them. 
neither of them were owed salvation. God has a right to reject Esau because Esau in his sin deserves rejection. And he has a right to grant eternal life to Jacob if he chooses, even though Jacob also deserves rejection. He is free to have mercy on whom he has mercy. For Paul, the really important key is that there was nothing Jacob did to earn that over Esau. It was all according to God's good pleasure. And so just a note about the what the confession said about for what God foresaw, right? He's not it's not that he looked down the corridor of time and saw that Jacob would obey more than Esau would. If you've read the Genesis account, and we actually preached through that story uh, last summer here at LNPC, if you go back and listen to those sermons, you'll notice Jacob is bad too. <laughs> There's nothing that he did to win over God better than Esau did. It was all according to God's good pleasure. So Paul makes that clear in verse 16. He says, So then it, salvation, election, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This raises a natural question. Perhaps you have it even now. Okay, so if salvation ultimately depends upon God, and he has mercy on who he wants and passes the others by, like, why is he blaming any of us? How can he find anyone guilty? He's the one making the choice about who he saves and who he doesn't. Paul also anticipates this question. Look down at verse 19 with me. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now here we might expect Paul to break out into an extended discussion of free will and God's sovereignty and how that tension is resolved. But Paul doesn't do that. Look at how he answers the objection in verse 20. But who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he is prepared beforehand for glory. What Paul reminds us here is that God is God, and we are not. He does not owe any of us salvation. Indeed, the real marvel of the doctrine of predestination is not that God doesn't choose everyone, but that God chose anyone. All of us deserved rejection. And in the mystery of his will, God chose some in love. This might seem unfair to us, but remember, fairness would demand that God reject everyone. Because fairness is about what people deserve, and what we deserve is judgment. It's also important to remember what we talked about last week. No one here is being rejected against their will. The doctrine of election does not limit human freedom, nor does it shut the door on a single person who wishes to repent. I've often heard that last objection raised. What if someone wants to be saved, but they are not predestined? The Bible says that there are no such people. Romans 3, 10 through 11 reminds us, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So if someone wants to be saved, that could only be possible because God has already done a work in them and is saving them. And if they are saved then it is because they were predestined to be so. As we conclude this episode, perhaps you're left wondering why God would order things this way. 
And of course, the simple answer is we don't know. Again, I'll quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, as I did last week, the secret things belong to the Lord. But what we do know is this. The only innocent victim of God's decree, if we can phrase it that way, is God himself. Because in God's predestining some to everlasting life, he also decreed that for salvation to happen, he would take on flesh and suffer the punishment due for our sin on the cross. Whatever the ultimate reason for God's ordering things this way in the divine mystery of his will, it cannot be that he is unloving because the decree includes the death of his son. And so we remember what Paul said in Ephesians 1, which we quoted earlier, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you'll join us again soon.